Hey, listeners, today's episode is sponsored by The Monolith. Transform any weak-willed, non-cooperative species into a galvanized group of super hunters in just one sudden appearance. Heralded as the best thing since dehydrated milk, The Monolith can help you level up in just about any situation. Big presentation on Monday? Monolith. Marriage flatlining and life as you know it crumbling in your fingertips like Pamela's gluten-free graham crackers? Monolith. It's the perfect solution for any sapien. That's why these mysterious celestial beings are offering our listeners a 30-day evolution guarantee. If you don't transform into a strange baby and hover above planet Earth, just send the monolith back to Jupiter no problem. Shipping costs may be astronomical, but at the end of the day, it's better to suggest extraterrestrial superintelligence than parade around the classic, all-too-familiar alien physique. The monolith. You'll be smashing bones in no time. Now here's the podcast. audio if i need later okay so we um this is our episode on 2001 a space odyssey and all things stanley kubrick i'm sure we'll do all of kubrick's filmography because pretty much every um movie that he made is based off a book but before that tanner and i I just started this conversation with a fiery take that i'm disappointed in oat milk tanner's uh, a vegan who will crumble under social pressure as we've discussed in episode one um, I am non-dairy and we bond in addition to books and films on non-dairy milks. And I was saying I'm disappointed in oat milk and I'll explain my reason in a sec. But Tanner said, oh, I thought he was going to disagree. And he said, no, I don't disagree. Oat milk is like a cult. And then I cut him off. And now I want to hear his so I could we could record. Yeah. And now I want to well, hear how oat milk's a cult. It's I, I think it's inferior to most nut milks that I've had. Like, I, I don't dislike oat milk, but it seems to me that everyone I know who drinks oat milk skipped straight from drinking cow's milk to oat milk. Didn't take a stop with almond milk or one of the other nut milks or even soy milk back in the day. It was just all of a sudden everyone I know was drinking fucking oat milk lattes. And then all these oat milk companies like Oatly have these obnoxiously trendy ad campaigns. I, I, I was in New oh, York. Oh, on the recently. benches? On benches? Yes, I've on seen benches, a lot of them, yeah. in the subways. They're all quite clever. And I don't know, from what I understand. <laughs> a little too it's, clever. Yeah, it's less nutritious than almond milk usually. And I feel like there's less oat milk that doesn't have added sugar. I, I sound like a piece of shit. But I, I, I just <laughs> no, like, no, I don't, don't buy it. You Go know? off. Like, Go off. <laughs> there are more of like the bottled coffee and oat milk lattes, whether it's like from La Cologne, which, which I enjoy, but it just feels all too perfect and clean. And I know almond milk is just almond water, but something about it, oat milk just being like leftover oatmeal water feels like more of a grift <laughs> to me. Okay, the the optimal word I want to use when it comes to oat milk is watery. It's watery. It's, it's watery. Good. I recently yeah. also, I guess not that recently, over Christmas, I um, <laughs> vegan story. I uh, went to like a movie night at a friend's house, and they all decided to make like hot chocolate um, with oat milk, but in the cocoa, whatever, there was milk. So I was like, oh, I can't have it. And my friend very nicely was like, bro, do you just want some hot oat milk? And I was just like, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I want to participate. And he heated it up on the stove, and I started drinking it and had the thought, wow, this tastes just like oatmeal. And then I realized, oh, 
it is. So just dive in with this. We don't have to, but so I don't forget this last time I saw, I, I recently saw 2001, two or three weeks ago on a 70 millimeter print in Santa Monica. Um, second time seeing it that way. It's always cool. Definitely one that comes around once a year, once every two years. Um, and I've forgotten this until this recent time, but I had a recurring nightmare as a child, obviously before I saw 2001 that I'm quite sure was basically about the monolith. Um, oh. And then, isn't that weird? So, so I'm watching this weird. and I'm like, this is so tapped into like something primal. And I don't know that you, like I, I had, I have a specific memory of a nightmare in which I think I thought it was an anvil, but a large black metal object that I, I didn't know what it was, was just like emanating an, an energy that was like a sound, but wasn't a sound. And I just knew it was bad and upsetting. And I had this nightmare several times mm-hmm. when I was like five or six. That is fascinating. And yeah, I feel like we should just dive right in then. Yeah, that's the, I can't even know how to how to respond to that. Cause that is like, I don't think I've ever, there is something really, there is, I think it's the simplicity of it. Um, I don't know, just the big black thing. The thing, that's the big difference. So um, in the Sentinel, uh, did you have a chance to reread it? I did reread the Sentinel. Lovely. Um, so the big the the monolith is is or the sentinel in that story. So that's they changed it. So basically, the 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 premise of the sentinel is it, the narrator is a first person narrator who's an who's an astronaut and he sees there's like some magnetic force going on um, by the crater Tycho. So that he wants to go check it out. His his astronaut bros are like, dude, are you gonna be the laughing stock of the force, man, of the space force? And he's I like, think I love your astronaut bro accent. Yeah, he's there. They do come off kind of bro in the story. Definitely, definitely. And then I do think cooking sausage links on the moon. Most, yeah, most astronauts I feel like are so like ruggedly male. Like it's funny to imagine. Like I think the casting in 2001 is pitch perfect. Like they just cast Frank Poole so well. Of like he's it's like the same type of guy almost, not quite of who's the who is Special Agent Holden Caulfield's partner in uh, Mindhunter. Oh my God, Holt McElhinney, Laney. Yeah, spot on. He's great. Yeah, yeah. he and he would totally fit in as an astronaut in this kind. Yeah, of they're totally believable. David Bowman reminds me so much of, and it's weird to say this. It's a big compliment, but I grew up with this kid Luke, who was like unflappable. Like he was extremely intelligent, super kind. He was quite shy, but he was not somebody that like I ever feel like was nervous. That's and he, yeah. Uh, well, I I feel like that's now that you say it, the casting of these two. I mean, they're both terrific, but like, there's a slight difference where I feel like Poole is more the kind of like jock version mm-hmm. of like perfect guy. Astro- Obviously, he's a scientist. We can. He seems very smart. And Kier Dulia, I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. I assume I don't know either. Um, he also is that, but like with his, you know, he's got that gray hair, even though he looks too young to have gray hair, and those incredible mm-hmm. eyes, like. Th- his eyes there's something like a little different about him where you're like this guy has got it going on on a slightly different weirder level mm-hmm. and he's the one who survives or at least you know well yeah he's he's more cerebral there's a more cerebral Definitely. quality to him but he's still the other guy you're like, like ah he's like a football player who is also <laughs> the valedictorian or something yeah he probably like went to yale and was like an end yeah, um yeah, yeah. but in the book it's it's never i don't think it, it uh, correct me if i'm wrong but in the 2001 the space odyssey the book so not the sentinel or the film um 
Frank Poole is like his deputy. So it's like Bowman is like the captain of the ship and Poole is like his deputy. And I actually thought that that's a way the novel, the novel is, is interesting to read if you're really into this movie like I am because it does give you that clarity. And while the movie is so mysterious and that's why it's like a part of the reason why it's just such an amazing film. It is, if you are just inter- interested in the story and like what the heck's going on, the book gives little little keys to the to the movie that make it uh make it equally fascinating i think i don't think it actually takes away from it i yeah i agree with things like that in the most in most cases like i mean there are so few cases where there's a novelization that like you know the filmmaker was involved in Mm -hmm. in this way but um it makes me think of now that you're saying this um once upon a time in hollywood i can't remember did you read the book no um i know you 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 did right yeah yeah and it's it's the kind of thing where I'm glad everything that's not in the movie isn't in the movie. And I don't like want to apply that information to the movie either. When I watch it, you know, the blanks mm-hmm. that are filled in. Cause I do think it could take away, but if you, but you don't have to think of it that way. And they both stand mm-hmm. on their own and the novelization does fill in so many gaps in, in a way that's very interesting for the novel itself. Um, all I have to say is I, I, I agree with you. I think you, if it's well done, you can have it both ways. Like 2001 is great because we don't know so much and your mind fills in the blanks. But it's also fun to have something, you know, if you're so into it that, that mm-hmm. it can fill in those blanks without taking away from it. I just totally myself like seven times. No, no, I, I agree. I think what you're saying, like, I, I don't I read somewhere and then I want to circle back to your dream about the monolith because um, I was talking about the, the differences in the Sentinel and the, the basically the Sentinel is a glass pyramid and Kubrick made it like this iPhone uh, looking <laughs> totally. thing, which is so prescient, which is ties into Arthur C. Clarke because the man was quite prescient with his takes about uh, technology and existential matters. But um, I know what you're saying though with like, I think I read somewhere in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that like Rick Dalton is bipolar. I don't Does it say that, that explicitly. I don't remember that, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it definitely okay. deals with his PTSD uh, in more ways and gets. Is he a veteran? More... He's a veteran. Oh yeah, okay. maybe he was like a green beret <laughs> or something. Like just, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, he killed a lot of people. But what's interesting about that and something I really loved about the book, I'm certainly forgetting more of the like probably problematic aspects of the novel that weren't in the movie that I didn't like, Mm. but there's a cool like long bit where it's essentially just cliff booths, film criticism. And, but he's never comes off as like an intellectual, but he's someone who's like seen such real shit in the war Mm. that he's incapable of liking like shitty everyday Hollywood movies. Like he appreciates the, the labor that goes into Hollywood movies, but he becomes interested in European art films when he comes back not because he's some intellectual, but just because that's the only thing that can like, you know, break through to him or feels like life. And it was just such a cool, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like, especially now there's a kind of populism um, that like permeates all culture that, you know, it's a fine line between being like pop music is actually an art form to, you know, you're um, <laughs> y- like, you're looking down on other people just because y- you think like, high art and cinema is more worthwhile than superhero movies but it's so obviously not true you know like some regular joe schmo can appreciate great art and this mm-hmm. guy cliff booth you know he, he it, to me it was tarantino making that case interesting i feel like my the first place my mind goes to is the reason 
I have two, two, a couple of thoughts, but one of them is the reason that Rick Dalton loves European art cinema is because Quentin Tarantino <laughs> loves European oh, for sure. art cinema. No, and that's, it's, it's clearly, and it's like, there's yeah. so much of it that's clearly just Tarantino, like being like, I want to talk shit about Truffaut or like yeah. you know, something like that and use Brad Pitt as my mouthpiece in this book. Yeah. So let's get into it here. So we talked a little about the set. Now we're kind of, we're up and down and across, but I'm into that because this movie and collaboration is crazy so tanner i figured here's here's what i thought we should do i, I kind of thought i would run through my arthur c clark notes because i'm a fan of his work and terrific about... stuff here by the way these are oh thank so you funny and fascinating i really felt i have to say i felt inspired to step up my game after your thomas pinchon you had such a great profile of him i know you use vulture and stuff like so i um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna say you know, is is it accurate? Is it not accurate? We don't know. I'm just kidding. I think it's it was highly accurate, highly entertaining. And I was like, I got to step up my game here. <laughs> what an honor. Okay, so I uh, so I want to do that. And then you saw my notes about the uh, Lost Worlds of 2001. Yes. I thought since I'm going to have to talk a lot here, maybe we would trade blows on that. That way we could react to it and have fun. That's a great idea. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm on board. Cool. So I called these sources from, uh, I found this, I went to Google scholar cause I'm a gosh darn Google scholar. It's actually free. You should check you sure it out. I, I didn't think I was going to be able to use it, uh, but then I realized I, I couldn't use it on my, they know when it's like a work thing, but if it's your own personal Gmail, like they wouldn't let me use it on my LAUSD account, but they let me use it on my Gmail. It's interesting. Damn. That's annoying and clever. <laughs> it is clever. Cause they're like, if you're just some dude, go for it. If you're working with a company pay up. Um, oh, okay, it's so just I, a podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so I read an article called Arthur C. Clarke, Pro- Prophet of the Space Age. I also he had an amazing like Playboy interview that he gave in 1986. The Lost Worlds of 2001 is fascinating, and I think should be. I want to buy the film rights, although they're probably crazy expensive, um, because it's a. It's all about the collaboration between. It was. It's basically his journal entries along with some short stories. Um, that helped inspire the the movie, but it's it's basically just all his log. It's like a, it re- really reads like a captain's log out at sea, um, just writing a little bit about what's going I, on every day. Real quick, I really wish they had this for like every movie. I I have I know the Jaws log is a famous book that's like this, oh. um, but there's a Soderbergh book that I love that is ostensibly him interviewing um, the uh, British filmmaker. Oh Jesus Christ can't remember his name um richard lester who made two of the early beatles movies and it was supposed to be just a book of interviews but then it just becomes his like daily diary while he's trying to like write movies and hating himself and i just a great (laughs) genre and this one definitely seems like it is one of the best ones yeah it was really fascinating i highly recommend um and then i want to give a shout out to the kubrick series podcast i'm really confused by it so there was a, a a podcast that has six episodes and it's really, really comprehensive. So if you're a big fan of Stanley Kubrick, such as myself, they have they have six episodes about specific movies and they interview like everyone who was involved with the movie, even like, you know, stars and stuff. But it doesn't seem like it seems like an ordinary dude doing it. And he always plugs this website, but I can never find the website. And then they kind of just went cold. Um, and I haven't there hasn't been an episode released in like, I feel like over a year, uh, but it's a great podcast. So if you're in, a, they have one about Dr. Strangelove, they've won about 2001. They've won about a Clockwork Orange. They have one about um, uh, Full Metal Jacket. And then I forget the others, but they, I've, I've listened to the whole thing and I was, I was really into it. I think they have that, one of Barry Lyndon, actually. That sounds well. great. Um, but you're saying we, we haven't heard from them in a while? 
We have not heard from them in a while. We've been unable to to reach the base. <laughs> We've been unable to reach the base. Okay. Um. So Arthur C. Clarke, the man, the myth, the legend. So he's a scientist. He's a writer, a futurist, explorer, and humanitarian. He's considered uh, one of the big three of modern science fiction, along with Isaac Asimov, the Foundation series, and iRobot, and Robert Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land. Have you ever read that? I have not, no. I haven't either, but I really want to. It's like about the first – it's like humans getting raised on Mars, and then the first human returns to Earth, and it's like right. about his journey. <sighs> it's such a great title, too. I think of it all the time, despite not having read it. Yeah, it is. It seems really fascinating. I remember. Do you ever feel this way? Like you, I heard about. It and I was like, oh, I really want to read that because this movie, uh, two thousand one, really kickstarted a love of science fiction in me. And um, then I downloaded a preview on my on my phone, like Kindle app, and I instantly. I always hate whatever I download because Kindles suck. So he is a. Uh, so Arthur is. He's like a hard science fiction writer. So basically, that's like science fiction that's concerned with accuracy and logic. Uh, so like Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick are two science fiction writers I really like, but they're they're less hard, but they they still ain't soft, but they're 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 less hard. It's less about there's some predictive stuff in there, but it's not about like getting it right. Like I feel like they kind of blend more with the fantastical, and obviously there's some of that, but the the biggest difference is like hard science fiction really delves into the hypothetical. It's like if we could extend right. science further, this is what could happen, and building worlds around that. Whereas, um. Like, I just think those writers aren't as concerned with it. And it's, I kind of, I don't know if I like hard science fiction more, frankly, but it's really impressive. You're like, oh, how are you doing this? This is incredible. Like, like, yeah, um, I, I feel like a good example. I mean, I've, I've read so much less sci fi than you, but just in movies that I always kind of point to is that like Star Wars versus Star mm -hmm. Trek. Like, Star yeah. Wars is more science fantasy, and Star Trek, in some ways, is like concerned about like what technology might be like and like the social advantages or repercussions, or like how they mm -hmm. like invented iPads, whatever the case. Yeah, no, totally. That's a really strong comparison there. So, Arthur's born in 1917 in England. He's raised on a farm. He enjoys stargazing and reading American science fiction pulp magazines. We should have a pulp fiction that's sciencey about a bunch of different. To all these like uh scientists getting crazy violent randomly with a, a w amazing soundtrack anyway he becomes <laughs> uh, he becomes fascinated with space travel he joined the british interplanetary society at age 17 in 1934 doesn't that sound very asteroid city it does it sounds like that's pretty much what it's about very excited for that one wes anderson's asteroid city yeah so it's, it's just an organization founded in the 30s it's like all about space advocacy and organization in the world it's so goofy because we were we were born at like you know much later after uh, we landed on the moon but it was like a whole thing being like like space travel is good it'll benefit all of us um so i think that's something we take it for granted because he was someone who was absolutely like, hoping or what's the jack johnson sitting waiting waiting wishing sitting uh, waiting wishing he, <laughs> he believed in superstition exactly about this specifically um also really quick there's a gelato store down the street from me where i'm staying in in maine and they have a they have a loyalty program called uh the 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 red spoon society doesn't that feel very west That's, anderson it's so well what is the <laughs> is it the key society in grand the society of the cross keys society of the cross yeah. keys yes it does it, it's like the red also, hats from life I, aquatic i do just that. picture maine as exclusively ice cream shops or gelato shops and it all just looks like wes anderson movies in this in the coastal towns yes i was actually gonna i went to booth bay harbor today 
Um, it's very coastal pastoral. I think that would be a great spot if we oh, want to end up shooting beautiful. East Coast. Yeah, it was great. Um, okay, so Arthur's dad dies suddenly. World War II breaks out. He has kind of a road doll moment here. He doesn't go to college. He joins the RAF, works on their radar systems. After that, when he's all said and done, he does go back to King's College in London. In 1948, he graduates with honors, earns degrees in physics and mathematics. So the boy's all about the science. He's still transfixed by space. He hooks back up with the British Interplanetary Society. Excuse me, I got a burp. Becomes its chairman on and off until 1953. He begins scientific and creative writing around this time, including his first novel, which I've never read or heard of, called Prelude to Space in 1947. I will say that's a great title for your first science fiction novel. I have to say Prelude to Space. Pretty pretty good. Pretty good title there. Really, really good. So um, he publishes Childhood's End in 1953, which is about alien overlords uh, who arrive on Earth, and they station these big um, – spaceships that look like they could kind of independence day all of those places and i actually think i have to imagine that the beginning of both the short story and the movie arrival um are that's exactly how they start with these with right with these huge ships going the the opening i think it's like a prologue is a character like doing something with someone else and then they just see these huge ships go over their head and they're like oh it ends with like we're not alone in the universe the the prologue so and then so basically it's that story i've read the book it's uh really good it's 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 interesting i remember i gave it to my friend nick and he he didn't really like it because he was like had just read lolita and it's it's not nearly as it's hard science fiction so it's like there's some interesting existential elements and there's certainly some fantastical elements as well but it's not like flowery prose it's just like very lean hard cutting good stuff um but I would recommend reading that. I think it's I think it's his of, of everything I've read of his. It's my favorite. Basically, it's three parts. These alien overlords coming down, people not trusting them because they refuse to reveal what they look like, um, and then they say they'll they talk to one dude. There's I forget I forget his name. He's got a great name. Is it? I, forget, I want to say Rick something, but it's not anyway. Or Deckard or Ecker. I don't know. I think Deckard. That's maybe. that's Blade Runner. Blade Runner. No, that's what's his name in Blade Runner. Rick Deckard. Rick Deckard. Yeah. I think I'm confusing stories. I think you're right. He, his name is something like that. Great science fiction protagonist name. And it's a, he, they only talk to one dude. He's like being like, look, we're never going to listen to you. Cause they're trying to impose their order. Basically they're like live and let live. They intervened twice. One of them probably hasn't aged. Well, they intervened <laughs> to stop bullfighting in Spain and they intervened to stop the oppression of the white minority in apartheid Africa, <laughs> South Africa. It's just like so random. Those are the two places they're like, cut, cut that shit out. And then they go back to their <laughs> ships, <laughs> you know? Um, and then, so uh, then the, the, the next half, is we that guy sees that guy sees what they look like and he finally understands the second half of the, or the second third of the book is 50 years after that um basically all of these spoiler alert all of these um alien overlords look just like the devil so they're like they, such they can't, a weird good idea it is a weird good idea it's like they just they can't the alien overlords can't um won't reveal themselves until religion is just goes away from society and that's something i want to bring back in when we talk about 2001 because of a, a little something i picked up on um this time watching it around but anyway and then the last thing is like it's revealed that the real reason they're there is because they're in an evolutionary cul-de-sac because they can't evolve to get to their next um kind of shell if you will so they want to help humans to do it mm-hmm. to study the process 
and uh, that's the last third of the novel. Um, so it's it's really weird and cool. Highly that recommend sa- that it. That sounds really fascinating. Evolutionary cul-de-sac, strong band name. <laughs> that is a good evolutionary cul-de-sac. That is a good band name. I thought recently when I was on on uh, the island, my my wife's family bought an island. Her grandfather bought an island in the fifties for three thousand dollars, which is crazy. The mortgage was ten dollars a month, and now um, they just have this island. So we go like once a year. And uh, I think I was inspired. I think I think a good rock name would be the Doc Spiders. People That's are always freak, freaking out about Doc Spiders. I feel like the Doc Spiders. If anyone hears this and is a, is a wannabe rocker and getting a group of guys together in a garage, feel free to take it. Just give us <laughs> – just, just subscribe to the pod. Um, okay, so they had two fans, one of which is the co-host of this podcast. The other is Stanley Kubrick. And uh, he really likes the podcast uh, <laughs> as well from the grave. No, he, he really likes – uh, childhood's end so basically childhood's end and along with uh so the 2001 series because there's been a few now um i think there's 2001 the space odyssey 2010 the year we make contact then there's like 2061 something else and there's like 3001 like the final odyssey i haven't re- read any of those but those books along with childhood's end and another book called rendezvous with rama are kind of the, his most famous novels and in 2021, it was announced that that novel, Rendezvous with Rama, is going to be adapted into a science fiction movie by none other than Denis Villeneuve. So exciting stuff. Checks out. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like it almost feels like it's too. It's like I read the, the what it's about. I haven't read it, but it's like basically like a massive object goes like across the sky or is they find a massive object coming towards Earth or something in space. And it feels like it's like almost too in his wheelhouse you know what right. i mean with arrival and then even now dune yeah mm-hmm. i wonder if he'll stick with that because he's already making the other dune movie we talked about him one of my, i think my last day in la when we were with gino because gino loves arrival and he loved dune um that guy he can really direct the fuck out of a big budget movie though he's it's good. cool yeah he really did make the leap you know some of these other people make the leap up like he did it kind of a few movies at a time gradually getting bigger versus the kind of these kind of smaller filmmakers who are just given a Jurassic Park movie and it's like oh this looks like shit but he's able to really <laughs> like like the scale you feel it you know surely mm-hmm. there are just as many effects if not more in Dune as like a Thor movie but like the giant ships look like giant ships in a way that's kind of like almost frightening mm-hmm. yeah I think great. the thing I loved about the visuals of Dune I think we we're talking about it felt like like immersive video game world like it really felt like this larger than life, almost like virtual reality. Because we saw it in the theaters together. I remember totally, had, totally. I uh, my weird French dispatch experience where the projectors like broke right before we got there. Um, gave yeah, I got a, I got free tickets to another Regal. Um, I think it was not Regal. I forget AMC. which one it was. AMC. AMC. We saw it at AMC then, Century City. Yes, and then you uh, you had already seen it, but you accompanied me, and it was good. It was a good movie, Dune. I, that really would be was. a good episode as well. So from there, this is – we don't have to spend too much time in this. I just happen to think it's interesting um, because of something that later is said by by Stanley Kubrick. Um, so in 56, he relocates to a Cylon. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It feels very Pokemon, like Celadon City, uh, which is now Sri Lanka, mostly to scuba dive because he loves scuba diving, and he does start his a scuba diving school. Um that eventually actually like there was a tsunami that ruined it or something i think a couple that's that's kind of interesting like i wonder if there's any connection between you know he's written about space and then kind of like you know the underworld 
underworld underwater ecosystem mm-hmm. not, di- not I, dissimilar i haven't i think you know spent my yeah. time in either but no totally i think he's fascinated by like natural systems and like he just seems like an explorer like this is just uh this is another guy i'm just like wow they i really feel like men back then uh just the what people were learning about maybe just because these are like the pinnacle men <laughs> most men were like smoking a cigarette like ignoring their children and beating their wife but some of these i'm like how did you have how are you a explorer a real scientist a science fiction writer and have your own scuba school in sri lanka i can't even you know string along a few days that feel productive over here but not gonna project on arthur c clark about my insecurities so he moves to Sri Lanka, and there's some rumors that he might actually be bisexual or gay, and that may be why he goes because he, uh, out of, you know, out of fear of scrutiny and subjugation. Apparently, it's hard. I I don't know if this is the case, but apparently the laws there were like a little bit lax. You know, like sodomy was a crime for a really long time. Um, I don't. This is much later than that, but I know Oscar Wilde, who I believe is also English, was jailed for sodomy because he, you know, he was a gay man. Um, so anyway, a lot of different sources said he was out to the public, but I can't find any sources that say like he actually came out, um, except on Wikipedia or on websites I found that have Comic Sans font. So I'm very <laughs> skeptical. Very of them. trustworthy. Yeah, I couldn't find, for example, I couldn't find articles that said he was like an out gay man on Google Scholar, and I couldn't find them on his foundation's website. So it makes me believe that he, I'll give you my reasons why I think he's gay, but I don't think it was ever uh, like he ever like, it sounds like he came out to people privately, but it, and he didn't advertise it because he didn't really care and it wasn't a big part of who he was. Um, obviously, he cared. Uh, that's shouldn't say that, but like he, it doesn't seem like it was, it was. Um, as the forefront of his identity and he was just when people would ask he was honest so like for example in an interview in playboy in 1986 he was asked if he ever had a same-sex experience and he very casually said of course who hasn't <laughs> i mean Great i haven't like you know like no it, it doesn't matter if you know if, if if people we know have or haven't it's just more like i don't think that's like a run-of-the-mill thing i think most you know would you agree with that yeah i think that's fair to say okay Certainly um, not then, or maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe then, you know, everyone's freewheeling. Well, I guess it's by that time it's eighty six, but you know, maybe in the sixties. Mm-hmm. So he uh, it makes me think of Creed Brad. Creed, I knew you were <laughs> yeah, gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> in the mud and the rain, if a man slipped in there, we'd have no way of knowing. Okay, I think this is so funny. Um, so apparently, too, he talked about this in the same Playboy interview. So he stayed in the Chelsea Hotel whenever he was in New York. Uh, working on 2001 and he would hang out with uh, the beat poets alan ginsburg and william s burroughs and so he was in new york a lot obviously working on the script with kubrick and apparently one time when he's in the chelsea hotel escorting two astronauts who are there to give their input on like the story and the sets and all that stuff ginsburg comes over and kisses him on the lips <laughs> and the astronauts Incredible. are like the astronaut bros are like dude what the fuck <laughs> astro bros just buzz aldrin being homophobic oh my god it's just like because think about it like they're like the in it's just they have to be so the 60s i they, mean it's like, really cool like worlds colliding thing yeah these like straight lace astronauts and this dude just macking on a beat poet awesome <laughs> i actually thought i was this only increased my respect for him more uh that he hung out with this crowd because i think this is a very like it's like the Hemingway Fitzgerald in Paris. Like, I feel like the next iteration of that is like the Ginsburg Burroughs Kerouacs in the sixties, you know, like these, these um, enclaves of writers getting together and hanging. Definitely. Out and it's cool when it's someone who isn't like necessarily associated with that specific movement. Who's there too, you know, 
mm-hmm. like Arthur C. Clarke, the beats, like not a lot of overlap there, you know, but, um, yeah. Yeah. We'll have to be a part of something like that. Well, maybe we're cultivating it here yeah, on this podcast. This is, <laughs> right, <laughs> they look, right. they, the when they look at the Chelsea hotel. Exactly. Um, so, you know, if, uh, Chili's is the new golf course, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe the Filmworms podcast is the new Chelsea hotel. Okay. So he and Asimov are fr- frenemies. They basically just go back and forth. Um, I think there's something it was like, they, they kind of had this, there was something it was like an Asimov Clark treaty where it was like, Clark was the better science fiction, like science writer, basically. And um, Asimov is the better fiction writer. I don't know if it, um, you know, really matters. I like, I personally like Clark a little bit more of that just because what I've been exposed to, I've read a few Asimov short stories and I do like them, but I have not read the foundation series, which he's most known for. But anyway, um, Asimov allegedly said, and I found this on Wikipedia, so I don't know if it's true. Um, that he was pretty open with about being gay um, with him and people who asked. So he just didn't advertise it. But if someone was like, Hey, are, are you gay? Cause he married one woman and it immediately goes, it immediately like they get divorced years later, but they get like separated like after three months and he just didn't work out. Didn't seem like interested in any women. And it got to the point towards the end of his life where people would ask him and he would just like say it was gay. But again, none of that's on the record on any like official sources. And this is, I think, the most interesting thing. Um, and after this, we can leave we can leave this go and move on. But he de- he dedicated a novel in 1979 to a Sri Lankan man named Leslie. Uh, I can't pronounce the last name. It's like Ekayaya Yake, um, who he describes in the dedication, which I read at the uh, um, library the other day. It's like one perfect friend for a lifetime. And here's the kicker. So Leslie died that same year in a motorcycle accident, but Arthur gets buried with him 30 years later. I'm not 100% sure. I found multiple sources on this, but not like an official source. But apparently he is buried in the same grave in Sri Lanka as this man, even though their deaths were separated by 30 years. That's really sad and also kind of sweet. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that was I was pretty moved by that. And I was like, wow. And it also made me feel bad for Arthur C. Clarke because I'm like, did there's there's no one else yeah, you're just you yearning know. for 30 years yeah oh. yeah um also to say the man is likely gay and let's leave it alone <laughs> so he moves to ceylon uh ceylon which is now sri lanka to scuba dive he discovers an underwater ruins of an ancient temple starts his own diving school that gets destroyed by tsunami man gets polio in 62 limits his movements but his writing output is still prolific maybe it helped because he couldn't move as much and he had so many interests maybe he was now confined to a chair and could be pretty prolific because he produced like i think over 100 novels and short stories in his day uh he cites lord dusani uh dunsany i can never pronounce that guy's name jules verne hg wells and edgar rice burroughs influences do you know uh, do you, real quick do you know how like when the pandemic happened people were like uh shakespeare wrote hamlet during his pandemic what are you doing should we get that going with polio I guess we'd have to make sure everyone gets polio, but it's coming back. Some people have gotten polio in the last week. Really? Is that because so, yeah. of like anti-vaxxers? I don't know. Probably. Um, I just saw that it's like becoming news that you have to have the polio vaccine and everyone's like, do I have it? And it's like, yes, you had to get it to go to public school. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, you know, if you're not let's turning out sci- like hard <laughs> sci-fi when you can't walk, then what are you even really doing? It's true. It's true. I support that. Maybe that's Sorry, the monkey. Maybe in monkeypox, that'll be the new thing. Okay. Because yeah, yeah, I yeah. got an alert today, even though I'm no longer in LA on my phone, that uh, m- monkeypox is officially in Los Angeles. 
Yeah, it's an emergency. Yeah, I wrote my rock opera when I had monkeypox. What did you do? <laughs> I wrote a little one act about Watergate. Uh, <laughs> so, um, he all those writers are great, by the way. Check them out. Jules Verne is is great. Probably my favorite of those. Two, uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea is fantastic uh, book. Highly recommend it. H.G. Wells. Uh, War of the Worlds and The Time Machine are great. Also, um, The Island of Dr. Moreau is a very weird, fun book. Oh, never read it. Only seen mm. the disastrous movie. Um, that has Brando in it? Yeah, and Val Kilmer. I have not. I actually have seen it. Um, I don't remember it. I took. I first came to Arthur C. Clarke and Childhoods End in my science fiction and fantasy literature class I took in college. And uh, we would watch. We actually watched 2001 um, after reading Childhood's End, but I was not there that day for class. Oh, I was gonna say. I know. I, it this movie's eluded me, but um, then it did hit hard then in the pandemic with me. But uh, fuck, what was I gonna say? We watched. We watched The Island of Dr. Moreau after we read it, and it was crazy. I don't. It's hard to evaluate a movie on like a small little curved screen in like a classroom. Um, but True. I remember thinking like, and I think the teacher even was like, yeah, this movie is not great, but like, why not watch it? So we did. <laughs> good teacher. Yes. Um, he was a good dude. Okay. So he has like post polio syndrome. It feels like it's the long COVID of polio. He's mostly wheelchair bound for the remainder of his life, but his writing continues unencumbered. The man gets knighted in 2000, the year 2000 for his services to literature, which I think Tanner should be our new stretch goal. And he was granted the pride of Sri Lanka, the country's highest civilian honor in 2005. An asteroid and a species of dinosaur also named after him just before his death in 2008 as well. Um, from Let's also try to get a dino uh, named after the podcast. That would be good. That would be good. Uh, 2008, the man dies, unfortunately, but he is 90, lived a great life. Respiratory failure just hours before a massive gamma ray burst from 7.5 billion years earlier i don't even know what that means i just know that sometimes you can see things from the past i guess when you're looking at space um allegedly but anyway it's a for, it was, at that time it was the furthest object or i don't know how a gamma ray is an object but uh visible to the naked eye and science writer suggested to name it the clark event i don't know if it actually did but what a lovely tribute to nice the man who's, yeah yeah um so I think another thing that's really cool, he was very predictive. Like he, he, that's why he got, he gets the futurist um, title to him. Cause he, he, he wrote this in 1962. He wrote a book called the profiles of the future, where he made predictions for inventions up until two, uh, 2100. So 2100, the year he basically in waves would be like, this is what's going in, to be invented here in this decade. And then this decade, and then this decade, and like all builds up to each other. And um, he, he, he said that we were going to have, like he, he's straight up predicted GPS, global satellite communications, and then positioning systems in like a handheld device. And he also said something to the effect of everyone was going to have all of the world's information accessible to them, the tip of their fingers, and then take it for granted. And he said that pre-internet. Yeah, that's a wild one. That's great. I, yeah, do, I do. I do take it for granted, by the way. I do. I think oh, we all I do. Make that not. clear. Yeah. <laughs> it's a given in our life, you know? Um, we were the kids of AIM. So... A quote that I think really sums up Arthur C. Clarke's worldview, and I really like it because I think it sums up my love for science fiction as well, is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I didn't know this was him. I hear this all the time. It's a great line. Uh, really good. Had no idea it was Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, I think it's great because it's like that is a thing. We do take it for granted, and like you can't act like it's not magic that you can FaceTime somebody and like 
I don't know, Australia. Like, that's incredible that we have the capability of doing that. It's mind-blowing. Okay. I know it's explainable, but really, it's I think it's, I think it's magic. Okay. So, and now pretty much everything I'm going to read – is from the we're uh, we're, we're going to go back and forth Tanner and I and these these were my favorite snippets from the log of the Lost Worlds of 2001 which was the Clark's diary in uh, the production of 2001 a Space Odyssey so we got to backtrack to the spring of 1964 Arthur receives a personal letter from Kubrick the Cubes as we like to call him says they have a mutual friend Roger Harris he's a huge fan of his work and he wants to discuss the possibility of working together on the proverbial science fiction film. Basically, Kubrick is saying all science fiction films are trash. I want to make one, though, and I love your work. And to be clear, and, this is Kubrick's coming right off of Dr. Strangelove, which is, you mm-hmm. know, his most acclaimed movie. Nominated, he's nominated for all the Oscars. So he's, he's got some juice. He's got some juice. He's really flown the cubes. So um, I just want to read this long one because I think it's it's really uh, – it just sets up really well. So this is Arthur C. Clarke's words. When I first met Stanley Kubrick for the first time in Trader Vic's on April 22nd, 1964, he had already absorbed an immense amount of science fact and science fiction and was in some danger of believing in flying saucers. I felt I had arrived. It's so good. I, I had arrived just in time to save him from this gruesome fate. Even from the beginning, he had a very clear of his old. He had a very clear idea of his ultimate goal and was searching for the best way to approach it. He wanted to make a movie about man's relationship, man's relationship to the universe, something which had never been attempted, still less achieved in the history of motion pictures. Of course, there have been innumerable space movies, most of them trash. Even the few that have been made with some skill and accuracy had been rather simple-minded, concerned more with the schoolboy excitement of space flight than its profound implications to society, philosophy, and religion. Stanley was fully aware of this and determined to create a work of art which would arouse the emotions of wonder, awe, and even, if appropriate, terror. How he said about it, I've described elsewhere. Please see... Son of Doctor Strangelove, or how I learned to stop worrying and love Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a weird title, but really cool. I thought that was so funny because it's like that's I love like, how it uses the the subtitle of Doctor Strangelove, but it's also weird to call that book Son of Doctor Strangelove because it just sounds like it's like a Son of Mask type sequel. It it does sound like that. I think it's just it, it says it was printed in a report. Uh, I don't think it was like a book, but I still think right, it, right. It, it is goofy. And wouldn't he be father of son, of Dr. Strangelove, not the son of it? Either way, um, great. So they decide to work together essentially to conceive the plot together. Stanley's the man Kubrick is going to take the reins in the screenplay. Arthur is going to be giving input in the plot, like I said. But Arthur's main job is to write the novel simultaneously, each one feeding into the other. Because we've talked about this a little bit. I think Kubrick is – like you know amazing arguably the greatest filmmaker ever i think he actually couldn't really write i think he like he all of his works have source material like none of them are original and that's not a knock on him i think you know this is podcast we love this stuff but i feel like he like he needs something to work from he can't just work from like create his own cloth so like even when there's no book he's like okay you're gonna write the book and then right, then right. we're gonna make it i mean i feel like he is at least from we know a great writer but like you're saying, he always has to start from something. I, mm-hmm. I know Alexander Payne has talked about being similar. Is Alexander Payne canceled? I don't know. I like his movies. Uh, oh, wait. Why is he canceled? Because of like Rose, uh, there was- Rose oh, Byrne or Rose. Oh, uh, what's her name? Sorry. Right. Not Rose Byrne, although that would be interesting. Um, oh, God. What is her name? Hold on. Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan of Charmed yeah. fame. 
Um, yeah, I'm not sure how that got cleared up. I certainly have heard he's a piece of shit, but um, makes some good movies and has won multiple Oscars for screenwriting. Not that that matters. Um, but he's <laughs> compared his own work to Kubrick. But with him, it's like he, he adapts a lot of books that are like are not that famous or I don't mm-hmm. even know if they have good reputations. And just like having that bedrock to build off of, like you're saying, definitely something Kubrick seems to need, even though it's like, I don't know, Eyes Wide Shut seems to be such a distant adaptation of some cool mm-hmm. Austrian novella. Um, but yeah, he, he has to operate from that starting point. It mm-hmm. also this reminds me the the novelization coming at the same time. It's just like how the Godfather happened basically. Like I think Mario Puzo had already sold the Godfather but wasn't done writing it, and then he and Kubrick or he and Kubrick he and Coppola <laughs> collaborated on both of those um, movies. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that that, that was the case. Yeah, the novel um, like wasn't completed when they started writing the the movie. Okay. Well, I know Kubrick's main thing, and we've talked about this before, and we'll, like again, we're probably going to come back to Kubrick throughout the, the history of this pod, but um, he doesn't like – I think this is really interesting. So he doesn't like picking um, books that he feels are classics. He feels like they're good, competent stories that he can improve upon. But the thing that's interesting is most of the people he's – the writers of uh, – not most, a few of the writers like Anthony Burgess of Clockwork Orange and Stephen King – of the shining fucking hate the movies whereas the one classic he did adapt which was lolita nabokov loved it so i think that's really interesting it is really interesting because it's also like i mean maybe less so at the time but and it's more populous but the shining like i get what he's saying but like also a huge classic Mm -hmm. i mean the shining is great I listened to an interview of him recently where we definitely need to do an episode on it. He's, he's kind of reappraised. He's turned around, right? Yeah. Because I think yeah, he it's... probably knows he's just been taking L's for like 40 years on this one. <laughs> I mean, there's, but his criticism of the movie is right though. It's just not just, it doesn't matter. Do you know what I right. mean? Exactly. Exactly. It's like yeah, Jack well Nicholson is crazy and does seem like he's not this protector figure. He seems like he's going to kill them from the moment they start driving there, but like, hell yeah. And it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I think it's terrifying and great. It's a really, really good movie. But um, okay, so before I we go a little back and forth here, Stanley decides that the Sentinel provides the best source material for the film. He buys six of Arthur's short stories, the Sentinel being one of them. Arthur buys the other five back after Stanley doesn't want to use them. And Arthur's thinking was, well, it's not really fair to make him pay for stuff he's not going to use. Also, these short stories might make good movies one day in the future. Um, And I don't know if any of them did, but I think that's pretty cool that he was like, you're not going to use them. I'll buy them back. Yeah. And then um, there was one thing. I don't know where it is. Um, I'll just insert it when I can. I'll, I'll just say, okay, so we're going to go back and forth and read Arthur C. Clarke's like basically diary, these logs. And at one point it just, we're going to see this. We're going to see things like take shape and how it's going with the two of them. And I just, I forgot to add one of them, but really early on Stanley Kubrick says, looks like we got a bestseller on our hands, <laughs> which is just like, I feel like he's like baiting him like come on work with me work with me, work with me. uh okay tanner you read the first one and then we'll, we'll go from there so this is good um july 26th 1964 stanley's birthday went to the village and found a card showing the earth coming apart at the seams and bearing the inscription how can you have a happy birthday when the whole world may blow up any minute i wonder if that's the west village um Sorry, I know Kubrick had lived in in uh, in the village in New York, but I thought he was already in England at this time. Doesn't matter, but uh, that's a pretty good card. <laughs> I just think it's like 
I don't something about that was so adorable to me. Okay, August 17th. This one's really funny to me. 1964. We've got the name of our hero at last, Alex Bowman. Hurrah. And it, that's not the name. It's not Dave. The name. <laughs> like we finally got it. And then it's not that. September 8th, 1964. Upset stomach last night. Dreamed I was a robot being rebuilt. In a great burst of energy, managed to redo two chapters. Took them to Stanley, who was very pleased, and cooked me a fine steak, remarking, Joe Levine doesn't do this for his writers. <laughs> Who's Joe Levine? Do you know? I actually don't know. I didn't recognize the name. Hold on. Yeah. Oh, Joseph E. Levine, American film producer. Okay. So he's already trying to be like, look, <laughs> look, I cook you steak, man. It's, it already feels like it's starting to be I own you. Thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like the cycle of abuse. Um, September 26, 1964, Stanley gave Joseph gave me Joseph Campbell's analysis of the myth, the hero with a thousand faces to study. Very stimulating. And how. October 17th, 1964, Stanley has, has invented the wild idea of a slightly, quote unquote, fag robots who create a Victorian environment to put our heroes at their ease. This really <laughs> reminded me of uh, the HBO adaptation of Watchmen, where Ozymandias has all these like Victorian butler robots working for him. Interesting. I have not seen not Watchmen. I remember you, you recommended it pretty highly, right? It was pretty great limited series. Yeah, it kind of falls off, but really great show with some really cool ideas. I should check it out. Um, I just saw I, he so St- Stanley they wrote he what Tanner said quote unquote bag. I just couldn't help but to laugh being like if Arthur C. Clarke is this closeted gay man and Stanley Kubrick is using like abrasive homophobic word, language and like <laughs> having to go along with it. <laughs> okay, we're we're both canceled. Mostly me, but not you. Okay, um, went to Natural History Museum to see Dairy or sorry Doctor Harry Shapiro's head of anthropology. Then he had a session with Stan arguing about early man's vegetarian versus carnivorous tendencies. Stan wants our visitors to turn man into carnivore. I argued that he always was. Back at the Chelsea, I phoned Ike Asimov to discuss the biochemistry of turning vegetarians into carnivores. <laughs> Real quick, Stanley Kubrick, think he was an oat milk guy? <laughs> no, I think he like if you brought him an oat milk, he would throw it, throw it on the ground, and then not even acknowledge you. He wouldn't yell; he would just throw it on the ground and then keep working. Um, I think Arthur C. Clarke would give oat milk, a ch- oat, oat milk a chance. I think he would ultimately be disappointed as well because he's a man of the future. I do like the idea that that Kubrick thinks that like, uh, um, like meat eating is the ultimate, the initial <laughs> evil. <laughs> I don't. I think he was, it was more like, uh, I think it's not so much ultimate evil. It's like steps into being modern humans. Okay. Okay. And then, and then Arthur C. Clarke's like, you're wrong. And then Stan's like, (laughs) no. (laughs) And then he, he feels like he, I just think it's next level, like passive aggression, uh, to then call Isaac Asimov and like talk. I also like calling him Ike Asimov. Like obviously they're friends, but good, uh, good nicknames. Great nickname. Um, okay, you got this. December tenth, nineteen sixty four. Stanley calls after screen H.G. Wells' Things to Come and says he'll never see another movie I recommend. I've never seen this. <laughs> it's certainly well regarded and was recently added to the Criterion Collection a few a few years ago. Um, but very funny. Uh, I I read an interview of, or, or watched an interview of Arthur C. Clarke saying that exact thing too that he told him to watch H.G. because Stanley Kubrick was like all science fiction movies suck. And he's like, watch things that come. And Stanley calls. He's like, yeah, ne- no. <laughs> and then Arthur C. Clarke says, in hindsight, the movie's a little naive. <laughs> um, I haven't seen it. 
But anyway, much great, of the real action, quick shout out. There's okay. a great Mia Hansen love movie also called Things to Come in French, L'Avenir. Uh, probably better. Ooh. Not sci-fi. Probably better. Um, December 21, 1964. Much of the afternoon spent by Stanley planning his Academy Award campaign for Dr. Strangelove. I get back to the Chelsea to find a note from Allen Ginsberg asking me to join him and William Burroughs at the bar downstairs. Do so thankfully in search of inspiration. I just wish I was one of these people. I know. God. Um, anyway, keep going. March 8th, 1965. Fighting hard to stop Stan from bringing Dr. Poole back from the dead. I'm afraid his obsession with immortality has overcome his artistic instincts. I love this idea that as an artist, he wants to live forever, so he insists his character has to come back. <laughs> I was really fascinated by that as well that he put there, and it's kind of like... I also am not... Uh, yeah, what exactly does he mean after he's shot out into space? I I imagine that or maybe the aliens bringing him back or maybe just him rescuing him after oh, how attacks. that second idea is cool like what if all of a sudden as mm -hmm. um uh dave is just aging uh, uh, uh totally preserved frank pool appears by his side or something i could see that. yeah well also in the book real quick the not the sentinel 2001 um when he gets attacked by hal and um it says like uh he gets to and he floats ahead and then um Basically, David thinks he's like, well, um, Frank Poole will be the first man ever to Saturn. And um, he like is kind of like horrified, but he's like he's he's going he's still kind of going on this mission in a way. And then later um, when we know how kills the 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 hibernating, uh, the hibernating crew members on board in the book. Uh, Dave has to like dump their bodies out because they're like rotting and the whole place is starting to smell. Um, and he's like, but so they're floating along with the ship too. And he's like, but they're not, but they're behind Frank. And he takes a weird satisfaction that they're not going to reach Saturn before um, Frank does. Oh, that's really sweet. I like that. Yeah. I mean, it's fucking dark, but they're <laughs> 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 like bodies humming along in space. Okay. Let's keep going. Um, you got this one's big. Oh, April 19th, 1965. Went up to the office with about 3,000 words Stanley hasn't read. The place is really humming now. About 10 people were working there, including two production staff from England. The walls are getting covered with impressive pictures, and I already feel quite a minor, minor cog in the works. Some psychotic insists that Stanley must hire him has been sitting on a park bench outside the office for a couple weeks and occasionally comes to the building. In self-defense, Stan has secreted a large hunting knife in his briefcase. That's a, a <laughs> lot going on there. I loved reading that because you hear all these random stuff. Like, you know how J. Cole waited outside to give his mixtape to Jay-Z? Right, or how supposedly, supposedly Spielberg just snuck onto the Universal lot as a youth with a briefcase and a suit until he had an office there. Yeah, but in reality, it's usually psychotics. Yeah, and then you're you like, have yeah to I'm going to keep a knife by my side in case I have to murk you. <laughs> May 1st, 1965, found that a fire had broken out on the third floor of the Chelsea, waited anxiously in the lobby while the firemen dealt with it. Visions of the only copy of the manuscript going up in smoke. <laughs> I love that's what's going through his mind. Do you know that, Um, you know, Ralph uh, Ellison, who wrote The Invisible Man? The Invisible Man, yeah. Yeah, Um, he's only written one book, and he did write a second book that he lost in a fire. And apparently he, like, never recovered. And he was, this is so sad Apparently he was going around to people asking if they remembered anything he said to them. Holy shit. That is. Yeah. Grim. 
It's so bad because he is. I was listening. Shout out once again the History of Literature podcast, best one hit wonders, and they put him on the list really high because they love that book. But then they were like also qualifying, like, well, it's not totally his fault, but really that is the only pe- book people know about from him, and I think that's really all he kind of came out with as far as novels goes, which is which sucks. That's like didn't Tarantino's first movie was just totally lost in a fire after they made it on weekends over like four years. My best friend's birthday. Uh huh. I thought that I saw part of it on the internet. Maybe I think didn't. some of it still exists. Okay. But that is not others, others of it was just burnt alive. October 1st, 1965. Stanley phoned with another ending. I find I left his treatment at his house last night. Unconscious rejection? <laughs> <laughs> 1965 still. Back to brood over the novel. Suddenly, I think, found a logical reason why Bowman should appear at the end as a baby. It's his image of himself at this stage of his development, and perhaps the cosmic consciousness has a sense of humor. Phone this idea to Stan, who wasn't too impressed, but I'm happy now. Hey, it works. As long as you're happy. October 15th, 1965. Stan has decided to kill off all of the crew of Discovery and leave Bowman only. Drastic, but it seems right. After all, Odysseus was the sole survivor. Dot, 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 dot. November 10th, 1965, accompanied Stan and the design staff into the Earth orbit ship and happened to remark that the cockpit looked like a Chinese restaurant. Stan said that killed it instantly for him and called for revisions. Must keep away from the art department for a few days. He's just accidentally fucking everything up. It's so funny. This was my favorite one because he just – I also think, though – it's clear that Stanley does really respect what he thinks, even though it doesn't necessarily seem that way at times. But like one offhanded comment that the cockpit looks like a Chinese restaurant and Stan, it kills Stan's boner and it makes the art department. Redo so everything. funny. No, uh, November 16th, 1965 long session with Stanley discussing script, several good ideas, but I rather wish we didn't have any more. December 26, 1965 boxing day for the Brits. Working all day. Stan phoned to thank me for the presence and sent a driver to collect what I'd written. He called later to say that he didn't think much of the dialogue. I agreed. (laughs) Uh, January 19th, 1966. Stanley phoned to say he was very happy with the last chapters and feels that the story is now rock hard. Delighted, I tried to pin him down at once to agree that the existing version could be typed and sent off to our agent. Cool that they shared an agent. Uh, maybe that's how that worked then. February 2nd, 1966, spent all day with Stan, developed a few new ideas, but of course there are endless interruptions. For example, Gary Lockwood and Kira Dulia with makeup tests. We want them to look 35-ish. I have a sore throat and incipient cold, so Stan kept me at arm's length. (laughs) Do you think Kubrick would have been, uh, you know, um, disinfecting groceries for a full year? I don't know. I just had the same thought. I was at my house. I feel like he would – oh, God, I, Corey used to do that, and it would drive me nuts because I'm like, there's no way that this is better. Like, we're, And now we're, we know. Yeah, it wasn't. And we are probably, like, inhaling and ingesting, like, literal poison. I yeah, think – Can I can I get on my, uh, you know, uh, not quite COVID denier rant, obviously? But, oh, uh, go for it. Trader Joe's, bring back the samples. <laughs> I was there yesterday, and I was turning the corner, and I was like, I haven't been to Trader Joe's in a few months. I bet they have samples again. Nah. Damn, because of fucking monkey pox. That's how I feel about um sprouts. Sprouts, if you can hear if you can hear me, bring back your coffee grinder. Are all you the kidding? bulk all the bulk food stuff is totally gone? And I feel like that's just something that happened early on then stuck, but it's like we know that's not primarily how this is spreading. Um 
I don't know. No. If it makes people more comfortable, I guess that's fine. But yeah, I agree. Bring it back. Okay. I also think it's hilarious the idea of Stanley like still wants him to come even though he's got a cold, but like kind of stay away. Stay, uh, stand in the corner. <laughs> May 29th, 1966, Stanley's attitude was that he wanted to do some more work on the manuscript and simply didn't have time because of the overwhelming pressure at the studio. It was overwhelming and I was continually awed by Stanley's ability to cope with a dozen simultaneous and interlocking crises. Any one of which could cost half a million dollars. No wonder he's fascinated by Napoleon. Cool that he was fascinated by Napoleon even at that stage, and he still never got his Napoleon movie made. But Joaquin's going to be Napoleon. I know. Walk. Walk the Conqueror. Oh, real quick, while we're on this, uh, I rewatched her two nights ago. It's 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 going to my top ten. It Damn. was hovering around. I haven't seen it since theaters. Um, it's so good. It's I, so good. I, I believe it, and I honestly, um, I there's some some daily wordle at, uh, like game I play for movies. I think it was one called Framed, where it like shows you you get one mm-hmm. frame for a movie, try to guess it, and the frames get more and more obvious. You get like five guesses. Um, Ooh, I want to play that. It's fun. I'll send it to you, um, or just Google Framed. Uh, <laughs> send it. it uh, send it. <laughs> check your chat. Um, no, but. Uh, and it was her the other day and i was like damn this movie looks so cool and it's like so weirdly good. optimistic sci-fi design it's the right it's the exact amount of sci-fi that i want and the costumes all really work because it's like I, it's so brilliant because it's like people think that when we go forward in time that everything gets more futuristic but really there's people it looks back a lot of times you know what i mean and that's and, the movie that's 9 years old and already people do dress like that it's crazy, and then it gets existential. It's shot beautifully. I think it's the smartest thing ever that um, that they wanted to be futuristic L.A., so they went to Japan. It's such a cool idea. It's just like I just can't. I also I, I, feels like it's in conversation with Lost in Translation in that way. It does, you know I mean? and and Spike Jones and Sofia Coppola yeah, were baby. married and Same got DP, divorced. I think on both of those movies. Oh, really? I have no idea, but they did get divorced, and a lot of people said that and i don't think she said this but uh she's very much the scar joe character because her her very uh like successful husband is paying no attention to her yeah it's clearly him they run into anna ferris who's who's just cameron diaz which spike jones are just you know worked with him being john malkovich and, <laughs> and then who's the voice of the freaking computer robot girlfriend scarlett johansson oh wow that's i didn't even think about that and apparently it was Japan. someone else and then they recast it at the end right. of the movie. Samantha Morton, I think. Anyway, um, but I'm glad I got to shoehorn that in because I was wanting to text text you about that. It was it's so fucking good. Highly recommend a rewatch. Okay, so no wonder he's fascinated by Napoleon, right? This actually continues going. He says, "But I maintain that I was the writer, and he should rely on my judgment." What would he say if I wanted to edit the film? Checkmate. In the end, we decided on a compromise. Stanley's. He would attempt during odd moments such as in the bathroom or while being ferried home in his Rolls Royce at the maximum speed permitted of 30 miles an hour to note down the improvements that he wanted to make. <laughs> That's awesome that he was afraid of going too fast in the car. Smart guy. He's right. I um, just think it's so funny that he's like, look, I know I don't have time to do this, but I think it could be improved. Tell you what, every time I'm t- I take a shit for the next three weeks, I'm going to think of an idea and I'm going to send it to you. 
that's how you get shit done um, oh god i used to write uh when i used to go to the bathroom at when i worked at grubhub and i would write in the bathroom for like 10 minute bursts that's pretty good rise and grind um yeah. <laughs> bathroom grind set uh stanley was as good as his word i still have a nine page memorandum of 37 paragraphs dated june 18th 1966 containing some very acute and occasionally acerbic observations such as can you use the word velt in a drought-stricken area where do you find bees in a drought-stricken area what do the bees live on a lot of drought questions do leopards growl can a leopard carry a man i don't think the verb twittering sounds right we must decide how these fellows talk glad they went with facebooking am i right <laughs> Uh, the Facebooking. It was still the, the Facebook. This his next comment. This reference sound sounds a little bit like a scene from Bambi. <laughs> that is the biggest fuck you. This, this maybe sounds he like loves Bambi. Bambi. Yeah, maybe he's a total Bambi stan. He's a Stanby. I think this is a very bad chapter and should not be in the book. It is pedantic, undramatic, and destroys the beautiful transition from Man Ape to 2001. Damn. Okay, here I'm gonna read this last one it's long um it goes because it's like it's it's a log and then it's commentary on the log so it's like one of the last ones and it says all memory of the weeks of the work at the hotel chelsea seems to have been obliterated and there are versions of the book that i can hardly remember i've lost count fortunately of the revisions and blind alleys it's all rather depressing i only hope the ultimate result is worth it so then later he's reflecting on it when he comes out with this book and he says the reason for this gloom was understandable. Stanley had refused to sign the contract after Delacorte, I think is the agent, had set the book in type and taken an impressive two-page advertisement in Publishers Weekly. So basically they're saying this is this is happening. This is the book. They're advertising it. Stanley refuses to sign the contract, though. He still argued he's not satisfied with the manuscript, and he wants to do more and work on it. He considered writing to – and then uh, Arthur C. Clarke says, I considered writing to Dr. Leakey to get the name of a good witch doctor, and Scott Meredith brought back some pins and wax. Delacorte and co. fought back – fighting back corporate tears broke up the type that they had set. I have always felt extremely grateful to them for their forbearance in this difficult matter, and I'm happy to give them a modest bestseller in Time Probe. It wasn't just well that no one dreamed that another two years would pass before the book was finally published by the New American Library in the summer of 1968, months after release of the movie. In the long run, everything came out right. Everything came out all right, exactly as Stanley had predicted. But I think I but I can think of easier ways of earning a living. Great line. Good closing line. So I think he really I think I think Stanley Kubrick did this to people. I think he did it to actors, I think he did it to everybody he worked with that he turned them inside out. He completely exhausted them. He took he hung them upside down and shook out all the all the last bits of lint in their pocket and then they're like he's right though and this is amazing and I don't know if I'll ever do this again even not just with him but ever again in my life, but holy cow, this is a masterpiece. You, yeah. You got to give it up. I recently uh, there was recently some some twittering going on about um, you know it comes up a lot how he kind of tortured Shelley Duvall supposedly mm -hmm. on the, side of the Shining but then someone had brought up how Scatman Crothers said that you know was talking about all the takes he would do on the Shining and how exhausting it was and how it broke people in a way that wasn't necessary but then someone found a video of Scatman Crothers because this was just the other one was just mm -hmm. um, you know a, a print quote and in this video. 
Scatman Crothers is talking about getting to work with Kubrick on The Shining, and he literally starts crying like tears of gratitude for being able to work with him and like what a beautiful artist he was. So it does certainly seem to be this like push and pull, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of has been, it always gets, I don't know. Cause now people say the same thing about David Fincher doing 99 takes for a shot and some people don't like it, but then also he works with a lot of the same people a lot. So mm-hmm. clearly some people enjoy working that way or getting the best out of each other. Um, but then, you know, you have people like Jake Gyllenhaal saying that, you know, he sees the whole shot as a canvas and, and, you know, a painting and it's, it's not easy to be a color. (laughs) That was was a hilarious quote. That is a really good quote. I mean, I think Kubrick, I think it's, you gotta, I think it depends if you know what you're signing up for. That's one thing, you know, if he pitches it one way and then it's another way. Um, But there's a difference between like shooting like 50 takes on something and annoying people and like, intentionally driving a woman insane so she seems insane mm-hmm. on camera i have seen some of the um this documentary shot by his daughter who i think is like kind of a crazy covid denier person now oh really um, yeah Damn, i just see her posting cool old pics of her dad That's maybe does he have two daughters i think it's actually the girl oh, okay. in i actually think it's there is a you know in 2001 then in the movie when um uh dr haywood floyd talks to the daughter i think that's actually kubrick's daughter oh that's cool not certain um but anyway i've heard i don't maybe i'm conflating but i thought i read a story that she was like tweeting out a bunch of misinformation and some of the i googled kubrick like i don't know a year ago and it was like yes stanley kubrick's daughter is insane like that was like a major head like the guardian or something maybe she Um, was just rebelling against her father's uh germophobia (laughs) yeah exactly um but what was I going to say? And he's taught the way he is talking to Shelly Duvall is like pretty mean. Like I've heard some of it. Um, I don't know if it's like, I don't know. I do think most people who use like coaches I've had who use negative reinforcement. I've had coaches. I've had really, really good coaches. I've had really shitty coaches. And my favorite coach was a guy. He was like, he was like, I didn't, I don't get any value out of breaking a guy down. And I had other coaches who did break. I had two coaches who really broke people down. One was my club coach, and I have to say the man's a genius. He, like, coached with the the uh, youth national team, and, like, he did know what he was doing. And I had another coach who just – that's how he communicated, and he was a bad coach. You know what I mean? I think Stanley is probably a good coach, but that being said, I don't know if that's a cool tactic. I, he probably did know what he was doing, though, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Um, but driving a woman insane is probably not cool. <laughs> um, so, wow. Okay, I think we – I feel – I feel – um pretty good about the clark portion do you think is there anything unclear do you have any questions do you feel ready to talk talk shop about the the film yeah yeah. let's get into the movie i mean yeah like i was saying i uh i well i first saw this it's such an interesting movie because it feels like a movie that you've always seen even if you haven't just in how just through cultural osmosis you know with how many times it's been i mean obviously it's influence is is as vast as outer space baby um but uh (laughs) But no, like it obviously it's influenced so many things, so many space movies, so many sci-fi movies and otherwise. But then also so many specifics have been parodied to like the end of time. So many in that I can't even remember, but like how many times have you seen something jokingly be presented as a grand reveal to the song, you know? Da mm-hmm. da, da, da da I know boom boom <laughs> and it it, it ta- it's hard to get into in the movie at first because you're like this is a joke but then of course the movie's so arresting and all-encompassing that that goes away immediately 
Totally. That's how I feel about The Godfather. We talk, we've mm. talked about this. Oh, totally a similar thing. Yeah. Where there are things you didn't even know were part mm-hmm. that you'd seen a million times or you thought it was different. I saw this last time I saw it on 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 film. I saw it with my girlfriend who had only seen pieces of it, I think. Um, and she, you know, knew some th- certain things but thought it would be much different. I mean, the parodies. Two, two I wanted to highlight that I, I forgot about until this time. Zoolander, the uh, the scene when they're hitting the the Mac, got to be a reference to the beginning, right? <laughs> oh, oh, I think I think you're right. I mean, I I I think no, that's good. That's got to be right. That's got to be right. <laughs> so funny. But then, were you also a Dexter's uh, Lab kid? I was. Um, I not like I liked Ed Ed and Eddie more on Cartoon Network, but um, sure. I did like Dexter's Lab. I remember there's one episode where, like, well, he has the computer that he always talks to, but there's mm-hmm. one where it, like, turns on him and has a glowing red eye, or maybe he gets a new computer or something <laughs> like that. But I definitely knew about that. And um, my, my girlfriend was mentioning that, and I, I even kind of felt this way having seen it several times. I'm always surprised by how little of the movie is the Hal stuff, because that's what you remember, mm-hmm. and that's certainly outside of maybe the bone being tossed into the the sky and the end of the movie that's the the stuff that feels like it's most part of culture i i certainly mm-hmm. always forget about the the middle section uh, oh of uh dr floyd yes totally which yeah. i i think is terrific and like it's really really cool. unsettling and kind of builds the tension that you're going to take into like the more confined thriller um th- that is the house sequence you know mm-hmm. i i think I mean, it's so cool with like you know, as the the bone transition into the spaceship. That's obviously super famous and just so genius. cool. Um, but it's so strange. The first conversation he has with the, I guess, Europeans on the on French the guy who's station. like, we heard there yeah. was a the enclavius base. It's, the, the, yeah, <laughs> it's really funny, but also you're like, uh, you haven't, you don't know who this guy is. And you're like, oh, he's this uh, American like you know, man in black guy who's clearly covering up something more sinister going on here. And he's like completely unflappable. Mm-hmm. Um, no, he's, he's another guy cast, cast great, really great performance. And then his, that, so that's, we should talk about this real quick, this, that portion of it. So there's like three portions of the movie or really four, I'd say. Um, so there's the prelude, the dawn of man, dawn of so man. Dawn, dawn of man. I guess that's also, there's an Arthur C. Clarke, um, uh story i think called dawn of man that it was partly pulling from and then there's the um there is this part that tanner is referencing where they go where dr haywood floyd is traveling he takes 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 him so long to get to space but the time when he gets there you believe you're there like it really feels like you're in space it's crazy definitely and so it's really methodical it takes forever i think there's 10 minutes without dialogue in that sequence as well and you're coming off of the dawn of man sequence where there's also no no dialogue because you know that they, they can't speak English. I know. I can't believe I love this movie because I'm so dialogue driven and its dialogue is so sparse, but it's really really effective. So the the second part of the movie is Doctor Haywood Floyd going to investigate um, and cover up. They they've leaked uh, intentionally leaked a rumor that their Clavius base, which is a like an outpost of the U.S. space program, has a a pandemic very uh, very applicable now. Um, but it's knew. really they. They knew, um, and so did Kubrick's daughter, man. But they um, they knew that actually that they 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 discovered something buried deep beneath the crust of the moon, aka the Sentinel, which we now is adapted to the monolith. I think that's really interesting that um, we talked about it a little bit, but uh, yeah, the, in the Arthur C. Clarke short story, it's a small glass pyramid. In the 
Kubrick, it's a giant um, monolith. It just feels very Kubrick. You know, it feels like it's just this. Totally. There's something I about mean, that, it. yeah, that, that becomes, uh, I mean, that it's just so effective how mm-hmm. it just it's just straight up just appears there. Oh, it's so unsettling. So there's 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 two things about the monolith too I want to talk about from the book that give some clarity. Um, so also just quickly though, visually I can't when you're when they get to the moon and they're looking they're you know when they're going down to look at the monolith. Uh-huh. Holy fuck! Like this was before we landed on the moon. Yeah. And it's so good, and there's no CGI, uh, uh, right? Before we landed on the moon. <laughs> sure. Have you ever seen the video of that like? guy kind of effeminate porky guy confronting buzz aldrin and buzz aldrin punches him in the face no. i'll just send it to you it's it's this guy coming up to buzz aldrin and he goes swear on the bible that you landed on the moon <laughs> like he's like would you swear on the bible and buzz aldrin just gets annoyed and just rocks this dude it's and he's like 90. yeah it's like an That's 88 awesome. year old man uh... um I mean, okay. it is incredible. So you, I mean, you, you watching this and coming out a year before the the moon landing, you understand why people think he's the one who faked the moon landing. You do, and tell you what, he did it better. It looks you know? <laughs> so good. Even like the, just like the floodlights or whatever that they have set up at the construction site. You're like, this looks perfect. It's yeah. It's, this is how I imagine it would be on the moon. Mm-hmm. It really is astonishing. I, a subtle thing too that I really liked. I love that those guys, and I, I, I got to talk about the difference um, before I forget. But I love that that team is in white, and then the mm. and then Bowman and Pool have their own colors. You know I what I mean? Love the colors. It's so that's an an example. Like for all the futurism in this movie and how cool mm-hmm. and great that is. I like that it's also still in a way rooted in 1968 in a way that I think it probably can't help but be, and it's not intentional, but you know, the furniture on the commercial space flight he takes mm-hmm. up to them or like the, whatever it is, the Hilton or Pan Am space mm-hmm. flight. It, it's all very mid-century modern. And so are the, the colors of like in the spaceship and their spacesuits. It just looks mm-hmm. fucking great. There's one. Uh, no, I agree. The color scheme in this film is incredible and everything is very, yeah. Mid-century modern in a way that's like, it's it's not that this is what necessarily what furniture is going to look in the future. It's like this is what cool furniture will look yeah. like in the future, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, there's a frame. Maybe if we like, you know, have an Instagram or something um, for this podcast, I'll throw it up. I was thinking of different frames to throw up. It would be cool. I wanted to send it to you, but it, it's screen protected. You can't screenshot it. I'm a, and I own it on Apple. I think I think out there, if you're listening, Amazon Prime does not uh, can still allow you to screen record and screen capture, but Thank Apple you, does Jeff. not. Yeah. Um, there's a the there's a when um David goes to disconnect Hal, the font and the typography and the color scheme, it's like white and red and the way it's spaced, it looks exactly like the back of a Mac or something. Like it's so pre uh prescient or pressure or whatever it is, it's amazing. But um so the the reason, you know, the um so that big scene where they're investigating the monolith, you know when it gives that noise? Yes. So in the book, it gives the noise because it's a su- it's a solar object. So now that it's been out of it's it's deliberately buried because they know it's uncovered. So when it hits the sun, it'll send the radio thing. So that's how the these aliens know that it's been ba- it's been uncovered. That's really cool. Great idea. So glad that's not in the movie. 
Yeah. You know I mean, it's that's like, one of the things yeah, they don't that's need so that, yeah. interesting, but like it's so much scarier. I, I'll also say this time, I don't remember if this was the case before, but seeing it in a theater, I thought someone was going to like get hurt. It was so loud in Pearson. Oh, God. But like, was I, it like, awesome? Looked, it was awesome. I mean, it was perfect. Like I, I looked to Leanne and it was kind of, kind of like a, this can't be right. Something's <laughs> <Yeah>. wrong. <laughs> this are is people, real. Are people going to start they, leaving? Uh, and and they, then, then it stopped. But it was the and you could totally feel it in the audience too. Ooh, um, that awesome. is cool when you can break the, like you can have a moment where you're like, is this is this real? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they the astronauts touch the sides of their head even though they can't oh. cover their actual ears. Um, oh, great point. Great point. Um, and then. Um, the another thing that was interesting, and it's like it just example of Arthur C. Clarke's hard science background. So the David Bowman like measures the um the uh monolith. He gets the coordinates when he's waiting, like in the final leg of the journey there, uh, in the Stargate, he's like doing the calculations and the and the dimensions are one, four, and nine. And he realizes those are the first three integers um square root. So like one times one is one, two times two is four, three times three is nine. So he's like, these guys are like, the, these aliens I'm going to visit are like next level, like perfect. That's a great detail. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I was almost surprised Kubrick didn't put that in because that feels very Kubrick to like, I don't know how he, he leaves things mysteriously, but that's like such a thing that I feel like he but would it's so exact, splooge. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I do think it's... <laughs> <laughs> He's hard for science. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do think, I mean, it's so intentional that they, I mean, you don't even know if it's aliens. You don't know what it is, you know? That is one thing that, yeah, that is one thing that makes me, I wish I didn't, I know what the ending is because I heard an interview of Kubrick saying it. I've read the criticism. I wish I didn't, you know, I wish yeah, I could but ponder I mean, it's about like, it. I know. I wish you could not know. But in the movie, you, you don't, you know, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter what he says. Obviously, it does. You can't erase that. It actually, uh, you haven't seen Nope, I take it. No, I actually, Nope, I haven't. But I would oh. actually really want to. I saw it. Uh, I saw Fourth of July in theaters the other week and saw a preview for it. And I was like, oh, I want to check this out. It looks cool. Yeah, uh, it's it's quite good, and it's certainly more Spielberg than than Kubrick in its, mm -hmm. its aesthetics. But um, there are some sci-fi ideas in it. Um, I mean, there's one thing in it where it's just like, well, I've never seen that before. Uh, I'm sure it's been in books, but never mm -hmm. in a movie. And some of the, yeah, actually, in some of the themes, because it's all about spectacle and seeing and being seen, and can you look directly at something? And Ooh. we have to. I I don't know. It kind of reminded me of the monolith. Um. But similarly, not really a spoiler. You, you don't really know if it, if they're like if it's aliens per se. You know, mm -hmm. like it seems to me like this does too. But in the movie, two thousand one, at least you're never like, is it interdimensional beings? Is it itself a being? Is it just some mm -hmm. force of creation or destruction? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's uh, very accurate, and that's why it it is really suggestive, and. Um, I think the thing is really uh, something that I think is really funny. And I read this on Wikipedia, so I don't know if it's true, but apparently Kubrick consulted Carl Sagan and Carl Sagan was like, don't have any bodies. Don't like, it's so going to look, it, it's going to, it's going to be gonna dated instantly. Yeah. And, but, and then Kubrick, I guess, pushed back on it. And he was like, look, he's like, he's like, I really think you should suggest super intelligence or like a higher power or something. Don't have it be like humanoid aliens. And I just love that Kubrick 
totally like had two huge alien costumes like in some closet somewhere <laughs> like she was like oh don't don't up. worry don't look don't look in there don't don't, don't look in there that's um, really funny there's a chapter as well at the end of the book it's like right it just kind of made me laugh this title um and i wondered if this was the chapter that kubrick hated or whatever it's chapter 32 it's like 40 pages from like the end of the book and it's concerning ets <laughs> and it's just like about what ets will probably look like um and basically the two schools of thought is that they probably look like have humanoid bodies with eyes and all that stuff because that's very clearly a very efficient way to store consciousness mm. um but then the other thought is well if there are these if uh if they're any more advanced than us they've probably found a way to get rid of their body that's pretty sick i would love to ditch this bad boy <laughs> and well that's a big theme in her a big right. thing that comes Great out point. Um, Great point. that i i and i think that is and i got a callback man thank you um that you can tell my my five years of amateur stand-up comedy when i can uh, have a good callback there um but the thing that I started kind of freaking out and that's like so cool with sci-fi and, and the story in particular can elicit. I was like, Oh my God, is our next. Cause I personally think we're probably an evolutionary cul-de-sac. I think we'll probably die out before we evolve again. Cause evolution takes so long. Um, and I know it's a morbid thought, but I was like, is our next iteration technology? Like, is that what it is? Is that like we find a way to shed our bodies or upload our consciousness and the singularity. I was like kind of freaking out because I was like, I don't want that, yeah, but it's, it's not relevant so to me or my life or whatever. But, uh, um, I think it very, it very well may be. Yeah. It seems, it seems to be like we're heading that way. Fucking, uh, Amazon whole foods now has the palm scanning. <laughs> I want that. Oh, that yeah. was like the, the thing I told you about in, in Europe with the soccer games. Remember oh, that? I don't, oh, right, right, right. I forgot about that. That's some dystopian shit. Yeah, well, it, it's it's okay. utopian, dystopian, the, the line of it. So apparently, so I have a friend whose brother plays professional soccer in Europe. And apparently that they were, there's a big problem with, with racism, obviously in the world, and especially in European soccer. It's unclear how to handle it because a lot of players stage protests and walk off the field when players start yelling racial slurs, but you're also giving a lot of power to racists then because racists can effectively end a game by chanting. So they're coming up with these different solutions. And apparently one of them wanted to have biometric scanning. And if you ever and like, for example, in England, racism or acts of racism or hate crimes, all this stuff, there's very specific laws around it. It's been that way for a while. So if you get convicted of any crime, um, relating to that i don't think in england this was proposed but um in another country like you can't you're not allowed in the game and they'll be able to track that from your biometrics you have to scan you'll have to scan like you're basically like a vein to get in which to me is like yes we do we want racists at soccer games no if you're racist should you be allowed to have all the same privileges in society no do you want your bio information to be with the corporation i don't Probably think we not yeah probably not maybe that's like that's too good of an idea you know <laughs> <laughs> we hear the world is really full of ideas that are just too good oh god um but fuck what was i gonna say um i don't know so 
that's what's so great about science fiction. And I could talk about this, this, this movie really opened it up for me. I really uh, have enjoyed the things I've, I've, uh, I've delved into, but I don't want to move away to that. I do want to have a, a conversation with you, Tanner, about some science fiction stuff to kind of get your takes on, on movies and books and things that you like, but what else can we, can we uh, talk about with this movie? Cause I just, I do Tanner, what's your like take on it? Cause there is, people think it's, and I kind of agree that it's, it's, the most boring masterpiece ever created. I don't think it's boring because I'm bought into the pacing and the timing of the movie and the effects. Do you think this is like, where does, are you comfortable calling it a masterpiece? Where are you at with this film? Definitely. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm cozy calling it a masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, I think you hear that a lot and I understand that some of the pacing is slow and not to be like a snob. Cause obviously that's not necessary, but to those people, it's like, watch this in a theater. There's no way you would feel that. I, I can't mm -hmm. imagine. First of all, I mean, it's so beautiful. The Dawn of Man sequence, I, until I saw it this time, I, I liked it before. It's incredible looking. It feels mm -hmm. like it's on another planet, even though you know it's Earth, which is kind of perfect, you know? Mm -hmm. It has this, like, lunar or even, like, Martian appearance because it's so red. No idea where we shot it. They shot it. Could look it up. Won't. Don't really want to know. Um, <laughs> I think they should. Do you want to know? I think I Yeah, Yeah, ruin it. Uh, I think part of it was on a soundstage in Spain, and then part of it was in Nambia. Okay, shout out Nambia, uh, <laughs> Namibia. Is that know. how you say it? It I might know be. There's another I in there. Aluminium. Uh, cancel um, me. I already said the F word. Continue. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, um, uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, I understand there are long sequences without dialogue. The other thing that uh, it's just like all of his movies, even the serious ones, it's really funny. I, I mean, obviously, it's it's scary in the house sequences, but seeing it with the crowd, everyone was just giggling, like, with glee the whole time. And I wanted to point this out. I, I don't remember if it's the case on, on digital copies. I have it on Blu-ray, but um, there's an intermission, right? And, and mm -hmm. when we saw it on film, they actually, like, honor it because it's built into the reels, which is great. You get to go to the bathroom and talk for 10 minutes. I got to turn to my girlfriend and be like, Did, was it like you expected? But it goes to intermission right after we go to Hal's point of view and see that he's reading their lips, which was just like so much fun. You know, it is. You, you, that you is digital, by the way. Escaped it? Oh, they do have the intermission. In the digital copies, oh. yeah, you have an intermission still. Oh, what a cliffhanger. It's so funny and exciting. So You're good. like, oh, these motherfuckers think they're better than Hal. Uh, <laughs> he got their asses. Um, he really does. Oh, Sorry, this is a, this is a, the most fascinating piece that I learned from reading the book that I got to shoe and horn now because you said Hal, and we definitely got to talk about that that guy. Um, the reason Hal goes, um, I think this is fascinating. So the reason he behaves the way he does in the movie, like why he predicts the fail thing and it's not true, um, and then he obviously starts attacking them, is because he has like a nervous breakdown because he is in he's in the know. He's he's the only one who knows the secret of, of the true nature of the mission. And he becomes really neurotic and unable to control his emotions. And the the um they run a parallel experiment in uh with a different how who has the same reaction. So it was like they didn't it was a mistake by the engineers to to overestimate um to underestimate the technology, which I think is fascinating. That's that's a great detail. I mean, that's I suppose you could read that in the film, like I guess it's not necessarily that it's why I think it's it almost seems it's more that he can't handle that he got something wrong I guess is the actual mm -hmm. text in the movie um well I think you think oh sorry to cut you off go ahead 
No, it's just, I, th- I always took it that he got made a mistake and couldn't accept that. So it was like, well, I have to shut the humans down because they're <laughs> the ones making the mistakes. I can't mm-hmm. be. I think that's part. I think that's like the the, the top layer and the surface layer is like the like he just isn't aware. He's like having this neurosis, neurosis. But the thing I think is interesting because when I read that. So, you know, the scene where um, how and I got to debut my how impression here. But when he goes, um, he's talking to Dave. He's like, Dave, could I have your. <laughs> Can I ask you a personal question? <laughs> really good. Um, I did this whole thing where I was sexually harassing Nick Ledger in a Hal voice, and we were just cackling with laughter. Um, <laughs> just Hal getting called to an HR office. But anyway, um, um, when you when with that knowledge from the book that he has this like kind of mental breakdown, for lack of a better term, because he knows the, the true nature of the mission and the astronauts don't. When he you 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 review that scene where he's asking Dave a personal question, he's expressing hesitation about the mm-hmm. mission and wants to know Dave's point of view. And then Dave kind of is initially honest. Then he's like, "Oh, you're working on your psychological like report, right?" I actually think it's like a much more sympathetic view now, being like, "Oh, I think maybe how was trying to like maybe." share some information or something yeah i that's really interesting and I, well i do think the movie has a hint of that not not that specifically but like the the empathy for him um and it certainly ties into the idea of you know man's relationship with technology but you know he they kind of treat you know they, they when they they're giving the interview they introduce him like oh he's just another member of the crew Mm-hmm. and dave treats him more like that but then there's that scene when he's is is frank sunbathing what is he doing but he, when he when mm, he talks yeah. to his parents he talks to hal so dismissively in a way where you're like yeah he's a machine he should but the way they've like given him so much personality you feel it so hard that he's being mean to him and it's <laughs> like and maybe it's because you already know where the movie's going but you want to be like motherfucker be nicer to him have you never worked in the service industry like how like, <laughs> have you ever like worked human for 725 an hour frank pool um that you know is what I mean? so That's, no i do also, know what you mean also weird not weird but just that there are two video birthday scenes it really stuck out to me this time oh i know i did tag that as well um i was like it kind of felt redundant but then i I don't know. It was like, I don't know what to make of it other than maybe, uh, I also wrote a note that the dad character in Frank's birthday is a little bit vaudevillian. A little, it's like, weird. The, well, happy, the happy birthday. Weird. They yeah. feel fake almost mm-hmm. in a way that like is kind of interesting. Like they're putting on this show for him because they're also eating cake for him, which I thought was really funny. Um, <laughs> they, um, yeah, I think in the book it's it talks about basically like, and I think they do a good, a really subtle job in the performance. But a lot of that initial narration of that portion of the book slash film is focused on how how um, alienated and isolated they feel, mm-hmm. and that like they when they kind of interact with people back on Earth, they feel even crazier than a little bit. That's and really th- interesting. Um, I do think it's weird that it is two birthdays though. I had an agreement about that. Um, but oh, one thing I wanted to—I wrote—I had a mental note to make as well. So you know, in the we we come back from intermission, Frank is now doing the spacewalk, right? Mm-hmm. And then ha- um, the pod actually attacks him. I didn't realize that at first, Seth, because David is in a pod. It seems like, right? And it's I thought it was easy. him turning, and then it like attacks, right? And then there's the red eye, and it does those quick succession cuts. Those and cuts then, are so great. Oh. They're amazing, and I actually got an, a very anime vibe from it. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, where it's almost like, or even in the cutting, it's almost like how anime can recreate kind of the panels of manga, like in that style Mm -hmm. of cutting, or maybe a split screen. Even though it's not split screen, the quick succession, it's almost like the frames are like washing over each other. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I love, that's like maybe, the spacewalks, another thing is like, those are so cool to watch. And so the sound is so effective. It's it's you just you're totally immersed with the breathing and mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Um, it really is. It's I all love, and great. This... That that whole chunk and and more to like how giving empathy to how like you're definitely with Dave. You're like okay, <laughs> fuck this robot up, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, by the time he's undoing everything and how his voice is going and he starts singing the only song he remembers, it's. Mm-hmm so sad it is really <laughs> like, sad and just it's like, really moving and oh i was really struck by it this time i did not remember it being so upsetting well he is he has the most uh this is an original take but it's worth noting is that he's not the most he has the most human death out of all the deaths mm. you know like the 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 people in the hibernaculum get turned off like they're a computer and he has like you know last words and is singing and is scared and he's like i'm scared dave my mind's going. Please Aww. show me that hog, Dave, one <laughs> last time. Um, but <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? The scene where he explodes in is just amazing. Um, another thing, too, yes. about... Oh, and, and so well set up. You see that, that sign so many times mm-hmm. with the bolts. It's so good. But also, the thing I think that's... You said this earlier about how... Um, the stuff with how is actually so little of the film. The thing I think is so effective about 2001 and almost like makes it untouchable in a way. I think Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke then like they put a whole genre to a subgenre to bed, like in that scene, they're like artificial intelligence. We got it. You know yeah, what I mean? It's, is it really a, a threat? They just put it to bed and being like, okay, let's fo- refocus on something else. Cause guess what? If there are, you know, if there is, um, if we're not alone in the universe, I don't know if we got that. You know what you're, I mean? You're you're so right. It is so great. I mean, obviously, there are four distinct chapters kind of to the movie, but how they take on all these different ideas individually. Uh, oh, man. And the last, I don't know, the Stargate sequence on, it's just, un- it's just the best. Even if the Stargate stuff is kind of dated, mm-hmm. that was really cool seeing in a theater. People just shut the fuck up for the full whatever it is, 15 minutes. Um, the and the the cuts back of his face distorted. Oh, when it's all slow and distorted, terrifying. It's, it was so. It's like it it puts the genre to bed of of artificial intelligence. It but then this movie parades through so many different genres. It's really scary at times, and the soundtrack really foreshadows a lot of things. Um, the whole time, it's like there's obviously the the you know the classical music that you talk about it's hard to take serious because it's been done so many times but then there's really like the scene um leading to uh the monolith that's been buried this this score is really unsettling as well oh good point good point um yeah it's it's a very scary movie both in like the more traditional way like the kind of horror thriller stuff with how but i think the whole end sequence is <laughs> just in the in the white tile room uh i don't know the first time i saw that i just remember thinking this is the scariest movie i've ever seen um, it's so effective it's so it's so well done like the simple the way it's just using film like the simple idea of you're with dave at this age 
he sees something over there cut to that objective point of view and you see him now at that age and then just keeping going like that like the year like are the years slipping away is he just losing time is he actually transporting to that next age who's bringing him his damn food <laughs> like i know like maybe the idea is that this higher consciousness or these aliens have like set up this recreation of their idea of like earth mm-hmm. humanity with like some of these like victorian like artifacts and serving plates or whatever and paintings oh, but it's just it's so deeply upsetting to me too i was struck by the muted color palette it's obviously still like the reds are still really vibrant but to me it really feels like i'm it sounds like i'm making a parallel to when i said when i hallucinated after taking a gb in in high school um and thinking hannibal lecter is in um uh terrarium but it really feels like they're kind of in like an aquarium and it has that vibe of because there's the the scuba divers you know in like in a, when you have like a sea monkey oh, sure, cage sure. and yeah. there and then the tile is usually a certain way it really feels like uh it really feels that way to me it's because like, and then that's kind of what kubrick then said it's like he's basically in a human zoo for observation where he has no passage of time um i actually thought so i think i might be having to hop off soon but i want to i want to talk about kubrick and i want to talk about sci-fi um but before we do that i think this part was really effective in the story so let me try to find it and i'll read just this part as well we've done a lot of chatting about clark um but i think it's the time passing i was like oh that's really interesting um let me see if i can find it real while quick. you're doing that just wanted to throw mm-hmm. in some quick i mean obviously like one of the most influential movies ever but some quick just bald rip-offs of it the in inception the last room that killian murphy gets to where mm. his dad's like dying in his bed just the 2001 room um and then also i, I uh, paul thomas anderson's uh, admiration of, of kubrick's you know well documented especially with punch drunk love and there will be blood punch drunk love you know he's got the uh the it, it feels kubrickian in the framing of a lot of the movie but the the is that a harmonium just that that just appears there it's just a monolith um <laughs> but then obviously there will be blood is the most kubrickian the whole opening without any dialogue again they're in the west but it feels like an almost lunar landscape and then of course the black oil you know whereas the monolith is like an introduction of who knows technology into man's life it's almost like the oil is the introduction of modern capitalism and that everything on from that point is going to be defined by that, that contact. Yeah. I really apologize. I was very distracted. I was getting texts um, from my wife about if I'm done. Um, Shout out Corey. You... Sorry, Corey. Okay. Um, can you give me that last about um, the oil? What were you saying? I heard everything until the oil. Oh, just like um, there's God. Is it the shot where he, he holds up the oil in his hand up and mm-hmm. it cuts to his hand? That reminds me of the cut while the bones flying up. But it's almost like that black oil is like the black monolith. But instead of man's first contact with technology, that kind of like, you know, is that the original sin? It's like that. But with modern capitalism, when Daniel discovers that and how like nothing's going to be the same from that point forward and possibly humanity's ruined, which seems that way. Well, tell you what, PTA, making a good connection there. Um, maybe I'll add this in, Tanner, at the end. Um, just like at the end of this, I'll read a portion of it that I'll, re- I'll record later. Um, why don't we – I think I have like 10 more minutes. So um, 
why don't we talk cubes and why don't we talk sci-fi real sci-fi, quick? Yeah. Okay. Um, how do you want to, where, where should we go with that? Um, do you want to do sci-fi first? Um, let's, let's go Kubrick actually. Cause I, I think I like Kubrick more than sci-fi when it comes to movies. <laughs> Same. I think that was, um, yeah, I was a little, uh, uh, I mean, I love sci-fi movies, but it's weird because there's hard sci-fi and fantasy sci-fi. And when you're a kid, or at least me, you're like, Star Wars, I love sci-fi. And as I've gotten older, I certainly do appreciate good, cool, hard sci-fi. But it feels so rare that it's well done or even space movies, you know. Mm-hmm. Certainly there's like the genre of, as I'm we're going into sci-fi, the genre <laughs> of like space movies that rip like are their take on 2001. James Gray's Ad Astra, I loved. Kind of like, you know, a warm heart versus the the cold brain of 2001 but uh, something that ad astra does well that it feels like a 2001 uh, reference is like it, i love the bit in the second part of 2001 with all just the brands being present in space and mm-hmm. i just want to say in ad astra they they make a stop over at the moon before going to mars and there's like a subway like subway <laughs> sandwiches it's great um, that is awesome i really want to watch ad astra um i got a little discouraged because of an in, an interview I heard Tarantino say where he was, he was talking about the joke talking about Joker and how Joker he was kind of annoyed with it because he felt like it was ripping off Taxi Driver but at the same time he was digging it and he was like is, but the, the other nagging thought is like is this what movies do now is Joker Taxi Driver is Ad Astra Apocalypse now and it I was is, like, yeah it is it is it is Heart of Darkness plus 2001 he's going to find his dad at the end of space mm-hmm. um, and then I was like is his dad like the king of a like some weird aliens and <laughs> doing sacrifices i feel like it kind of got spoiled for me um but anyway okay so kubrick for me is i was late i feel like i'm saying this every time i've been because i guess my film blossoming it came later than most uh film worms uh came later to the game for me but i think he's just just french kiss chef's kiss he's someone i would be like I know his films are so cerebral and they're hard to digest, but I just really, really like them. I think 2001 is my favorite. And then after that, I actually think a very underrated movie is Full Metal Jacket. I think Full Metal Jacket is awesome. Yeah, I uh, I guess, I mean, I'd certainly seen The Shining growing up several, you know, in pieces several times. My parents, all three of my parents, stepdad included, are huge Stephen King people. And I think appreciated the movie, even though, you know, it's not, doesn't adhere to the book so cleanly. But um. Yeah, I got into him more in college because definitely I was like, who's the best director? I'm in college. I'm just going to read Stanley Kubrick quotes on the IMDb page rather than doing my homework in the library. Um, but that was when I definitely, you know, I watched Bot 2001 on Blu-ray, watched it with my friends. That's probably the last time I saw Full Metal Jacket. Um, I would love to rewatch it. I remember at the time not agreeing with, you know, the reputation is that the first half is great and the second half is like whatever. Mm-hmm. I remember loving the whole thing. Like, I understand that take. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I saw Spartacus as a kid, missed it last week on 70 millimeter, bought tickets, was too tired to go. Kind of bummed about that. Um, but I, yeah, I think I feel like 2001, similarly to how I felt about No Country for Old Men with the Coens, like, it probably is my favorite, but then fucking weird eyes wide shut is right there and it's so funny and fascinating to me and like a movie i never stopped thinking about but i would say 2001 eyes wide shut and i also really love paths of glory um such a great anti-war film 
that is like all incredible war action that then becomes like a courtroom satire in the second half totally bravura stuff um really really cool obviously dr strangelove is hilarious um then i'm actually seeing the killing the new beverly tomorrow night which i saw twice in college and really liked so i'm excited to revisit that yeah i have not seen the killing and i have not seen passive glory i've seen part of the killing and i know the plot of it and those are two that are on my list um i have seen i think the shining is amazing the shining is like another one that just looms so large in our uh cultural canon here um i think I'm, i might have to go unfortunately but yeah i don't i don't know what 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 um final words can we have maybe we could do if we really feel it we've talked for almost two hours so it's funny to me i'm like we're ending early yeah, and i don't know what to say and we are planning to do multiple Kubrick episodes um i just feel like this film is um is just like is a must watch i'll just put it that i guess yeah it's i kind of you know i actually so i saw this i've said so many times that i saw it in 70 millimeter which is just an annoying thing to say but the american cinematheque was doing this series of like essentially big famous movies on 70 millimeter prints and so i saw this at the beginning of july and then vertigo a couple of weeks ago both there and both are movies where it's like i don't know that that's my favorite movie but they both feel in separate ways and kind of similar ways like the movie like maybe if <laughs> aliens came down with a monolith and you're like what's a movie you're like well i guess it's pretty much this 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 would be the <laughs> one uh, you know it feels like it contains it could do anything and everything and speaks to everything um and also just funny and scary too just funny and scary bro astronauts in space disrespecting a robot who has a nervous breakdown before one of them dies and the other becomes a baby <laughs> the star child in the book he detonates all the nuclear bombs too in the world without killing anyone that's how the book ends damn without yeah. killing anyone star baby yeah. star baby that's i did also star baby real quick another thing I, th- I think this is a good thing to end on have you seen blades of glory i, I have um strons and fair tra- and and uh oh it's fair child not star child damn it i was gonna say i, I, thought it was... I think the only thing i remember from blades of glory is uh when they first meet and and i think will ferrell goes or perhaps you remember our our uh, competition in boston where my victory was as sweet as the cream pie the town was named after <laughs> I just remember him vomiting in his head at like the when he was wearing the bear suit. That's the main thing I have. Okay, Tanner. Um, wow, this was great. I'm excited for Jackie Brown next episode because I feel like that's the first time I feel like you are getting your 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 day in the sun. I feel like they've been mostly my days in the sun. <laughs> my day in, in the Hermosa Beach sun. Mm-hmm. Hey, can't I'm wait. Too. All right, let's let's talk later. Good night, man. Good night, good man. times. Love to the family. Peace, 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 peace cubes. <laughs> cubes out. Cubes out.